Good evening, everybody. Welcome to this, the final event of our spooky season, lasting the entire month of October. Uh, we aren't raising awareness for a specific charity this month, as you've probably already picked up on. Uh, this month has been entirely just raising awareness for mental health. Um, after lockdown, especially, not just then, but more so now, there's been a lot of people through across the world who have been having difficulties with mental health, and we're just trying to raise awareness and let people know that they aren't alone. Lots of people go through these types of situations, and there are places for you to turn to if you do need any type of support. Anyway, on that note, let us proceed. This evening event will be kicking off with the story Broken Atmosphere, written by Ellie Rhodes, narrated by Helena Beecham, and illustrated by Sasha Ward. Enjoy the spooks. Broken Atmosphere by Ellie Rhodes, narrated by Helena Beecham, trigger warnings of anxiety, panic attack and self-harm. Dr. Melanie Earth had been teaching environment and sustainability at the university for eight years, and never had she once come across a class like this. Sure, classes got smaller with every new turn of students, but according to her colleagues, that was normal. It started with the first iPhone popping out of someone's pocket, sometime when Melanie first started teaching. She was a little shocked at first. Everyone was usually so mesmerised by her presentations. The distractions were never an issue. But it could have been an emergency, or just a quick search of a word she'd used and forgotten to explain. Melanie smiled a little. If only she had known then. She was stood at the front of the lecture hall, her PowerPoint displayed behind her in bold letters, Afforestation. A tidal wave of dazed eyes were all bent down, either to the phones they were attempting to hide under their desks, or the laptops they precariously balanced on their thighs for note-taking. Let's discuss some positive and negative outcomes of afforestation on the, let us say, Amazon rainforest, as an example, Melanie said. Silence followed, as a single eye twitched up to her direction. The clicking of keys on laptops and thumbs against screens were her only response. Anyone? she asked. Melanie took a deep breath, the humming radiators with their dust filling her nose. She may as well have asked the radiators. They hummed in unison, as if all pondering the question on a deeper, more philosophical level. Yes, they'd ask, what are the positive and negative consequences of afforestation? How does it affect me, a humble radiator, bound to the prison of this wall for my lifetime? A leaf blower revved outside the window. A couple of students walked past the lecture hall door, laughing at something. Melanie hadn't laughed in days. She wanted to run out of the lecture hall, find those students and ask about the joke. She wanted to crack up at whatever it was and roll around with tears in her eyes, forcing the air out of her lungs in loud, breathy laughs. It would be more productive than waiting for responses from people who obviously didn't care about their dying planet. What did it matter that their planet was wasting away? At least Mark from high school posted a funny meme on Reddit. That's all that mattered. You know what? Melanie asked, pointing the small remote to the projector on the ceiling and switching it off. You can all go. Evidently, none of you care. The hall erupted with the sound of people getting to their feet. Phones were slipped into jeans pockets. Laptops dropped into rucksacks and rows of students hopping down the stairs and to the door, their lips glued shut. 
Melanie was left alone in an empty hall with the radiators still pondering their existence. They could have at least said thank you or sorry before leaving. She sighed, turned to the front desk, and started dropping her belongings into her satchel. Her bamboo pencil pot, her phone, her recycled paper pad, a group of whiteboard pens clumped together with an elastic band. The whiteboard pens fell to the grey carpet. Melanie gripped the edge of the desk, bent double, and gasped for air. Panic had passed through the double doors of the lecture hall, pelted her with needles, and then taken her neck in his hand, squeezing tighter and tighter. Tears prickled Melanie's eyes and fell down her red face. She was so hot. Her armpits were swampy underneath her knitted vest. For a moment, Melanie thought her heart would pound so hard it would break through her ribcage. She fell into the chair at the front desk and leant her head back as far as it could go. Oxygen rushed down her windpipe and filled her trembling lungs once again. One too many times that had happened over the past month, something had to be done. Melanie swept the sweat off her forehead with the sleeve of her shirt, shrugged on her blazer, shouldered her satchel and sped out the lecture hall. She rushed down cream corridors, all identical to each other. The walls covered in meningitis posters, art students' work framed and hung, and some boards covered in old presentations by students who left years before. Melanie pulled her phone out of her bag and slammed her thumbs against the screen, trying to find the map of the campus on the uni's app that failed to load when it wasn't crashing. It proved unnecessary, though. She reached the door before the map had fully loaded. A silver plaque on the door read, Dr. Daniel J. Turner, University Counselor. Melanie knocked. There was no way you'd have time to see her. Not only was it four in the evening, but there was always a waiting queue in October that lasted for months. Melanie's students complained about it often. The door opened to a man in a tweed jacket, brown loafers and a floral tie. His silver hair was pushed back off his wrinkled forehead and his eyes creased into a smile from underneath his glasses. May I help you? he asked. Um, I don't know, Melanie said. She shouldn't have come. She knew it was a bad idea, but it was too late. Dr. Turner laughed and ushered her into the room, seating her in one of the two red velvet armchairs by the window of the small room. He offered her a cup of tea, which Melanie refused, before seating himself opposite her. So, he said, tell me about why you're here. She explained the slow decay of her class sizes each year and the students' obsessions with screens. She told him about the uni's budget cuts to a lot of the lesser-known courses, especially hers, and how important it was to learn about the conservation, yet very few were learning. Dr Turner slumped lower and lower into his chair as Melanie babbled on, her speech getting faster, her voice getting higher. He was looking out the window, the glass surrounded by thick ivy, at the nectarine sun that was setting behind the castle-like structure of the university. Today has been my fifth panic attack in two weeks, she said, her cheeks starting to wet with a fresh stream of tears. I think... I think I may have anxiety. Dr Turner's head swiveled towards Melanie, his thick eyebrows knitting together. He placed both of his veiny hands on the arms of the chair and lifted himself into a better sitting position. Anxiety, he asked. What makes you think that? Well, she said, the panic attacks, the diminishing self-esteem, the lack of enthusiasm I feel for work, and how much coffee do you drink a day, Miss Dr Earth? She corrected him and only about a cup a day. He started stroking his shaven chin. 
quizzically gazing out of the window again. He told Melanie she should stop drinking coffee. The caffeine would be raising her heart rate, which triggered panic attacks a lot faster. He then asked her how much exercise she did. Melanie told him she ran about once a week and always went for a walk on a Sunday afternoon. He said she should exercise more and would release more endorphins. And what about therapy? Melanie asked. Dr. Turner chuckled, taking a clipboard from beside his chair. He started scratching information into a form. You don't need therapy, my dear. A few adjustments can make the world of difference, you know. Something started chewing at Melanie's chest, the muscles being dragged into some void that sat in the centre of her torso. I really don't think it'll work. I was talking to my sister. She's in therapy for depression at the moment, and she thought it might do me some good, she said. Dr. Turner scowled again, resting the clipboard on his thighs. Dr. Earth, what you're experiencing isn't anxiety. It's just what people feel. We all have these low moments when we feel like our work means nothing to the world and that our lives are meaningless. Your sister may feel therapy is the case, but I, a trained counsellor, believe otherwise. I really do think it's anxiety, though. And why is that? He asked sceptically crossing his arms over his chest and leaning back in his chair. Melanie pushed off her blazer. Her fingers moved to the cuffs of her shirt and started unbuttoning them. It took a minute. Her hands were so shaky. Melanie told herself she would never do this. No one should ever know, but she needed proof. She started to roll up her sleeves, her ghostly arms, all knobby and bony, shivering in the cold. Once both the sleeves were up, Melanie stretched her arms out in front of her. This is why, she said. Jagged red lines coiled around Melanie's upper arms like a starving snake clinging to a branch. They had scabbed over now, but only a couple of days ago she was wearing bandages so the blood and weeping wouldn't seep through her shirt. Dr. Turner's jaw clenched. I'm not one to sympathise with attention-seeking doctor, he said. Attention-seeking, she asked, unrolling her sleeves and buttoning them back up. You think I'm doing this for art? To show off? Dr. Turner, I have been struggling for months. I live alone. My parents barely call me. My students take no interest in me. Our planet is dying and I'm trying my best to save it, but to no avail. And you tell me I'm attention-seeking. Have a good evening, Doctor. Don't expect me to knock on your door in desperation again. Melanie threw on her blazer, grabbed her satchel off the floor and stormed out the room. She ran down the corridors, bursting through one of the fire exits and letting the evening breeze blow her sweaty body dry. She held herself and sobbed, bent over, letting her glittery tears fall to the tarmac. Never again would Melanie Earth show her arms. Never again would she trust another human being with her innermost thoughts, the doubts hidden in the cave of her mind. She shouldered her bag and walked. She passed through the front gates of the campus and wandered down the road the setting sun igniting her ocean-coloured hair with fiery oranges and yellows. Well, wasn't that charming? On to our next story of this evening. We have got Tether of Blood, written by Holly Morris, narrated by Jadzia Calamano, and illustrated by Emma Adams. The name itself just sounds quite grim, so let's see what blood and gore this delightful piece brings us. Enjoy. Pretty girl, you know, if... If I was not lying in front of you ripped into pieces, they'd found you an hour ago. 
You watched as the lights of the cars pierced the misty blue of dawn from the window. They had pulled up outside the abandoned house, and the engine cut out, letting the valley fall into its last moment of calm before the storm. You would watch the beams of their torches sweeping down the grass path, already rising and growing from where it had been trampled at twilight, and then pausing before the building, clearly apprehensive. They knocked on the door first, as if manners right now were the solution to what they were about to walk into. Jesus. But the smaller, dumpier officer had gagged me to finally open the door. The other officer had pinned a handkerchief to his nose and crackled on the radio. Call off the search party, he had ordered. We have found her. Every drop of blood was like a separate life force, pulling you in different directions. The drying puddles on the cracked concrete trickling down from where your skull was smashed against the crumbling wall. Your, your blood clung to the soles of their shoes, and you knew a part of you would be dragged home with them, forced to watch as they kept living while you were left pressed up against the glass, desperate to be left to rest. You wanted to look away when they finally found your body, discarded on the mattress like an old chew toy, that was a privilege for the living. So you stared as they saw the main piece of you, and then scoured the abandoned room for the rest of the puzzle. It was like some twisted game. Some were obvious to find, like your right thigh or shoulder, bones poking out of the, of the flesh, pale pink and white against the red. Others were more difficult, like your right breast, as you had tenderly placed in a small box in the fireplace, the nipple intact and surrounded by dandelions that he had fashioned into a grotesque flower crown. It took them another twenty minutes before they found the ears and tongue, and it seemed like they had found the final puzzle piece. They had not yet noticed that he had taken your collarbone. They put on the gloves, took photos, and then bagged you with plastic bags like dog poo with no softness or care. You were dumped sack by sack into a box, and then taken away where they would try to stitch you together, but you knew that wouldn't matter. The photos would be released, and the next time someone searched your name, it would not be your birth records, but your death sentence all to be gawped and stared at like a freak. It had been the same for his previous victims. You had done the gawping yourself. Now on the other side of it, you longed to apologise to those before you, acknowledge the warnings they had left. Their deaths shouldn't have been for nothing, and it seemed yours would fall into that gruesome line-up. This is the last who went missing two days ago. Yeah, we have notified the parents, but haven't said what's happened to her yet. Don't tell my parents. Do not let them see me like this. A picture side playing of your mum screaming in despair and your dad, dad's world shattering as his little girl lay torn apart in front of him. They would never fall asleep again. The coffin would stay closed and would seal that image in the mind until they joined you beneath the earth. You felt a distinct instinct to throw up, but no convulsion came. He had taken your stomach as well, so it felt like you were always missing a step. Then more people came, and the floors were cleaned, the bags stored in vans, and soon it was just people talking too much with not enough answers. You knew he was here before you saw him. You were still all over his skin, and it pulled on you, a dark force that was sickeningly desirable. You even tried to hold on to the building, scrabbling at thin air as you felt drawn to him, out the building and across the dewy fields where the hummingbirds lazily droned, and the flowers were just starting to glisten in the morning sun, right to the cusp of the hill. He was repulsive to look at, and what disgusted you even further was the uncontrollable relief of a bittersweet reunion. Here he stood, standing in the open, as if he were the Achilles on the battlefield of Troy. His hair was combed, and he had changed shirts, crisp and white with a stiffly starched collar, and the sleeves rolled up and ironed, so they were not creased. 
He was not wearing his tool belt anymore, and his shoes were no longer the wellies, but shined black brogues. His forearms were covered in your blood. Here you started to cry because it seemed like your sword had been ripped out of your chest and onto his arms. He had not let you pass on, and so big salty tears dripped down your cheeks that never fell because they had nowhere to drop, unlike the remnants of your life dripping melodically from his fingers into his shoe. He let out a satisfied exhale and stretched as if tired, resting his hands on his hips. You tried not to cringe at the rapid spread of red on his shirt where his hands sat. He looked away from the dilapidated building and towards the sunrise, closing his eyes and smiling. He was enjoying himself, a man at leisure, relaxed and at ease. Not caring that less than a mile away, police officers were swarming over the body of a girl who soaked his fingertips. It was a good thing nothing in the world seemed to hear you as your screams pierced the peaceful morning. Your hurtled slurs and abuse called him names that set your teeth on edge, splitting, splitting, splitting threats which you knew you'd never be able to fulfil, because whilst he still had you on his skin, there'd always be a part of you that longed for him to be alive. At last, when your voice had almost given out and you felt as torn apart as your corpse, you whispered one final plea. I wish you would just leave me be. He turned away from the skyline and stared right at you. You held your breath, half expecting your heart to start hammering wildly in your chest. For a moment you thought he could see you, but his eyes were unfocused and indistant, lost in another world. Still, you did not dare move until he turned away. He made his way back down the hill, leaving the house behind him, dragging, with, drag, dragging you with that unbreakable calling. You followed along through foliage and wildlife until you found a small clearing where a battered car sat waiting. The pull of your being was intoxicating now, and when he opened the back door to grab something, he saw the brown bag and its lumpy contents. The rest of the puzzle. You reached out to grab it, but your hands clutched nothing. You went to kick the car, but your foot made no contact. The engine revved to life, and you had no choice but to follow, the magnetic pull making it impossible for you to keep up as he drove out of the woods and onto the highway, joining the traffic of the morning commuters going into the city. At one point, you passed the possession of police cars and felt a small tug of longing as you knew they were going to your parents' house, but he had the stronger hold, and so you followed the battered car for miles, away from the city and deep into the mountains. The sun had peaked and was starting to dip when the car finally stopped beside a ravine topped with snow. There you watched as you grabbed the bag from the back seat and started clambering up a pile of rocks towards a small cave set into the mountain. Its walls were slick with water and the stones did not move when kicked from, for the frost held them tight and everything was so cold touching anything would cause pain to someone alive. The bag was stowed behind a rock and covered and you felt your tether shift. Apparently satisfied, he lit a cigarette, letting the embers illuminate his face under the purple sky. There was no remorse or guilt in his expression, only fatigue. He scratched his stubbly chin and tapped the ash building up. He was someone you would not look twice at if you passed him on the street, but now his face would be the only one you would see. When the first stars started to twinkle, he stamped out the rest of his cigarette and started to make his way down to the car. You could not follow him now. You did not want to see who would be next. As he drove away, you looked out over the mountains and down to the lights of another city spread far below. The bag was a tether of comfort, but you knew it would not last forever. It would eventually freeze, and you'd be stuck here forever, unable to move on. And then all that would be left is you, aimlessly wandering, trying to find something that would put you at rest. Here we are. Our last story for this evening, because we don't want to overdo it this time, especially since we've had a full month 
of stories depicting various different types of horror. We've had our old school, we've had our vampiric, our paranormal, our phobias. And obviously this evening we've been focusing on horrors of a more human nature. I mean, humans, after all, are one of the most dangerous and deadly species on the planet. And we are forever showing that to be our true nature. So with this, we will conclude this evening's events with Victorian and Bloody, written by Rebecca Kinder, narrated by Bethany Davy, and illustrated by Bridget Lees. I hope you enjoy. Victorian and Bloody by Rebecca Kinder and narrated by Bethany Davy. Jack the Ripper strikes again. Jack the Ripper brutally cuts open Hall. Jack the Ripper claims fifth victim. Jack the Ripper strikes again. Jack the Ripper brutally cuts open Hall. Jack the Ripper claims fifth victim. A chorus of young boys scream in a rough London accent, repeating over each other. Is this the end for the Ripper? Fifth victim survives. Scotland Yard are asking for all people who had been in Whitechapel at the time and spotted a man leaving the scene in a bloodied clothes to contact them. Wanted Jack the Ripper, £150 reward. Let her tell her story. Don't tell it to, to her as it's not yours to tell. Now, I know that you're here for his story. After all, he is the famous one, the one in all the newspapers, the mass murderer coined to be Jack the Ripper. But this is not his story. This is her story, the one who survived. It started with a hand around the throat. And she just thought one of the regulars was back again. But it ends with blades and bloods clinging to life. A hand is wrapped around her neck. Fingers clenching, nails digging deep into her skin. So back again, are you? You want more? I can give it, yeah, it. You know, you must pay a pretty dollar for it. Rules are rules. The other hand covered her mouth. What the hell do you think you're doing? She wheezed out, trying to gain breath. He had his hands around her neck, holding on, trying to stop her from speaking out. His hands on her chest, holding onto her lungs, trying to stop her from breathing out. She struggled to gasp out breath. She cannot breathe. He has his hands around her wrist, like shackles stopping them from reaching out. His arms are wrapped around her like a snake, not letting her go. He's covering her mouth and making her gag and wanting her to be sick. She keeps trying to breathe, but nothing is coming out. It is just gasping and slightly exhales of hair that escape his hand. His hand releases. She drops to the floor. 
Her chest hits the floor and the man crouches down and presses a knee to her back, using it to hold her down. His hands are on his hips, leaving marks and indentations that will haunt her every night. He is burying her hatred, stopping her from moving or talking. He just wants to use her and make her give up. He stands back and just watches her as she's finally able to breathe freely. She takes a few deep breaths in quick succession. She rolls over onto her back and she gets herself back up. He presses his foot against her chest and keeps pushing it until her back hits the door. She shouts until her voice is hoarse and she is out of air. She is banging her hands raw and covered in blood on the floor, leaving imprints and smears on the door. But still, no one turns to look or help her. She is just a voice shouting on deaf ear and nobody cares. He takes a step towards her and pulls something from his pocket. His bag has dropped to the floor with a clash and a clang. She cannot tell what what he pulled out, but something reflected off it. A wisp of light. It was something metal in his hand. He takes another step forward and that was when she saw it. A blade of some kind. He bends down and places his empty hand to her chin and lifts her head up so that she is looking at him directly in the eyes. He brings his other hand, the one that is holding the knife, to her neck and moves towards her ears with her lips. Now you're going to shut up and be good. She stops shouting and fighting and nods. The woman just lying there in a puddle on the floor, thrown there like yesterday's rubbish. The man stood in the corner, just watching her, towering over her. He walked over to the woman and slapped her hand hard across the face several times before she woke up. He put his clammy hand on her chin, tipped it up so she looked at him. Her hands fell to her knees. She pulled her knees up and rested her chin against him. She closed her eyes. Are you going to be good for me or do I need a knife again? He let her head fall towards the floor, not responding as it bangs. She did not want to move. She could not, not again. She was stuck. He grabbed hold of her hair and pulled on it hard until she screamed in pain. He just laughs at her. He opens the bag that he has dropped to the floor. From the bag, he pulls out rope and a small piece of wood. She sat in a lump on the floor. He dropped to his knees and takes a hold of her wrists, bringing them in front of her. Then he took the time to rape the rope. He pulled it so it was tight, pulling her forward. Once he was satisfied with the way it was wrapped around her, he grunted and yanked and she screamed. He dropped the rope so she she fell. He stood up and smiled down at her. It was not a nice smile. He took a hold of the roll and yanked it hard. So she screamed at the top of her lungs. That's when she got fed up with playing, playing her with her and pulled out the knife, slowly started to make cut after cut. 
she started to bleed slowly until it built and became a river, leaving splashes and smears of blood all over her body that exploded out from where he cut through the layers of her dress. But he forgot that she was tough and a fighter and would never give up. He forgot that she matters and that she has worth. And she is not dead yet. Our heart still beats. So she is still fighting for you to hear her. And that concludes our spooky month. Thank you all so, so much for joining us these past few weeks, enjoying our stories, sharing them, helping us get more reach. We very, very much appreciate it, especially since we are just starting out. I hope you enjoyed this evening's stories, though they were a bit dark and glum, and they maybe made you feel a little bit too aware of what exactly the humans you surround yourself with are capable of. But don't let that put you off. It's not a guarantee that all humans are like that. It's just a very, very high statistic. And always remember, this entire month has been in aid of raising awareness for mental health. There's a huge stigma going around about mental health at the minute. So many people are just like, oh, well, you're not putting enough effort to get over it. We don't agree with that. It takes more than just trying to get over it, to get over it. There's many different forms, there's many different types. Who are we and who is anyone to say that one type is worse than the other and one type is less severe than the other? We are here for anyone who wants to turn to us and we will always try and help you out in any ways we can. But there is help out there. You just need to try and look for it. Thank you for tuning in and we'll see you all next month. And remember, you best be in bed soon. It's past your bedtime.